Mr. Torkington, you've been speaking, writing, studying, praying about uh, the subject of uh, mystical theology, the the Catholic understanding of it, the our history, and our, the whole the, the the theology of the subject itself for again quite a while. So when it comes to the sense of the sacred or our loss of it, our diminishing understanding of it, um, the things that we've lost along the way, and how can we recover it? What's some of the things that come to mind for you and your expertise of mystical theology? Well, David, I think the best way I can begin is by telling a story. And I'm afraid it's something of a horror story. I've got to go back to about 19... 1960, 72. In 1969, I was made the director of a residential centre in London by the Bishop. And my tenure lasted from 1969 to 1981. Three years into my tenure, two years into my tenure, I had a conversation with a priest who had come on one of the courses about prayer and he told me something that really shattered me. He was a priest and a religious and he said that from 1957 when he joined the order, his order, until his ordination in 1964 no one had ever spoken about personal prayer at all, either to him or to other novices or other students. Now, I thought this was a complete one-off. And so in the intervening years, I did a questionnaire of all priests who came into the center and they all totally agreed with him. This was utterly commonplace. Later on, when I was asked to go to Rome in the end of the 1970s and the early 80s to lecture in mystical theology, uh, thanks to the Dominicans, you are, I believe you've got a Dominican background yourself, David, uh, the Dominicans asked me to go there because they were putting on a sort of an ecumenical course for Dominicans from all over the world and they wanted me to uh, talk on uh, mystical theology. I found the same there, whoever I asked. In the decades that, decades that followed, as I travelled here, there and everywhere, once again, it was the same old story. Now, the, the frightening fact of the matter is that the sense of the sacred is the outward expression of the encounter with God and that encounter takes place in prayer. Take that away and everything goes. So here we're talking about cause and consequences. 
So in order to address the, uh, the issue, therefore, it, it is not necessary or not important or fruitless to spend your time going piecemeal to deal with, uh, let us say, uh, the decor of the church or the vestments or the, uh, the sacred vessels used. They're only the expression. The problem lies in our relationship with God. And both priests and relig religious who I spoke to had completely, there was a complete breakdown of personal prayer. On this, everything depends. Let me tell you another story that comes to mind. During this time, I went to Franciscan Italy, where I made a retreat in the hermitage of Fonte Colombo high up in the uh, mountains above Rieti. Fonte Colombo, incidentally, and as a matter of interest to viewers, was the place where St. Francis wrote his rule, and therefore it is called the Franciscan Sinai. If you go into the church there, around the sanctuary where the friars sing their, or chant their divine office every day, there is this wonderful saying that St. Bernardine of Siena insisted had to be painted around the choir. And it, it is this. I don't know what your Latin's like. I'll start with Latin and then we'll go to English. But it's almost, um, it's almost English. See, the first word is see, which means if. Now, here we go. See, cor, non orat, in vanum, lingua laborat. If the tongue, if the heart does not pray, then in vain does the, does the tongue labor. This is the essence of everything. It is about the heart. If the heart does not pray, the liturgy will soon become barren and become not the opus day, but the onus day, a burden. Take prayer out. There is the source, therefore, of the lack of the sense of the sacred. But, and I must take this further, David, because there's something here that's very, that could easily be missed. And it is very important. We're not just talking about the sense of the sacred in objects, in churches, in chalices, in vestments, in the choir store, in the choir. Bring back Gregorian chant. What about the sacredness of the human person? The sacredness of the human person made in God's image and likeness and called by St. Paul, you are the temples of the Holy Spirit. How many temples of the Holy Spirit have been desecrated by priests and by religious in recent years on an industrial scale? Now, this is just so important, David that we've got to go back to the cause of it all, because there is a cause, a clear historical cause. It's a cause that I first uh, discovered and studied in this book.
Enthusiasm by Monsignor Ronald Knox. He's a specialist in 17th century spirituality. Not a lot of people know that. And it is here that I discovered the, the, the source of everything. Because immediately after the Council of Trent, then the new Latin Mass, the new Tridentine Mass, was central to Catholic spirituality, absolutely central. But it was also satellited by profound mystical prayer, mystical theology, satellited for a hundred years. This is particularly important to me because I'm actually a descendant of Catholic um, who suffered in penal times. Many of them were thrown in prison. One was hanged, drawn and quartered. So this means a lot to me. This was their spirituality in penal times, this mass and this profound mystical spirituality. Now, I was going to read you something from um, Monsignor Ronald Knox's book, but it, it, I, I've, I've written it down because the writing is rather small and I find it difficult to read. Now, this is Monsignor Ronald Knox. This is before the trouble began, David. So we've got to see the ideal before the trouble began. The 17th century was a century of mystics. The doctrine of the interior life was far better publicized, developed in far greater detail than it had ever been publicized in, developed in far greater detail than it had in late medieval Germany or late medieval England. Bremont, in his history of the religious life in France, has traced unforgettably the progress of that movement there. But Spain, too, the country of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, had her mystics. Italy also had her mystics, who flourished under the aegis of the Vatican. Even the exiled church in England produced in Father Baker's Sancta Sophia a classic of the interior life. Enthusiasm, page 200. 32. And then he goes on to the problem and he deals with it in detail in his book. He is a specialist on a terrible heretical form of mysticism called quietism. Now, quietism was the brainchild of a Spanish priest who was living in Rome. His name was Molino. And he said what he wanted to do and where he wanted to lead his followers was into what St. Teresa calls the prayer of the quiet in her book, Interior Castle. But influenced by Protestantism, he said, when you go into prayer, um, you must do absolutely nothing because there's nothing you can do in one sense. You, you know that famous saying, David, the, the, the danger of heresy is the truth, not, not the error in it. He said that it is a gift of God. God does everything. We must do nothing. But 
Not only must we do nothing as we await God, we must do nothing about the distractions and temptations that come either. And so when temptations came and arose in prayer, they did nothing but give way to them. So when he was condemned, he was condemned not only for falling into Protestantism, he was condemned for gross acts of sexual indecency for which he got a life sentence. And so many others were censured too. Gross sexual indecency for giving way to temptations on a massive scale. Now, when you start to perform serious acts of sin, you become porous to evil and so open to the diabolical. Now, I'm making this point now so that you, so that listeners, viewers can realize what a terrible um, parody of mystical theology this was. But nevertheless, it was there and on a wide scale and already had spread all over Europe. So understandably, the church came down heavily on every form of prayer that had the slightest whiff of quietism about it. And what happened, of course, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They coined a phrase. Mysticism begins in mist and it ends in schism. Now, from then onwards, therefore, the deterioration gradually began in subsequent centuries. Right down to the present day, we are actually reaping the ultimate rewards of this terrible heresy in Rome now. Why? Because all our strength is, where, where, where is our strength? Our strength is in God. When I'm talking about prayer and the importance of prayer, I'm talking about the importance of God because prayer is merely the word we use to describe the way in which we radically open ourselves to God. Because my, my, we need God's help now more than at any other time. And I'm not exaggerating here because I am a historian of Christian Catholic spirituality more than at any time in the whole history of Christian spirituality. What is happening in Rome at the moment is going to tear our beloved church into pieces and it's almost too late. There's only one person can help us. That person is God. And there's only one thing we can do, therefore, and that is to turn to God and radically open ourselves to receive the only help and strength that, uh, uh, that can help us, the help and strength that only he can give us. This is why, David, and I'm not ashamed to give a plug here, I've been asked to give a whole series of 20 lectures on prayer of Christian spirituality from the very beginning of our earliest days to the present, to help us all, the new remnant, to gather together around Christ. Believe me, <laughs> I don't need to tell you, believe me, Christ is the one who is the head of our church, both in heaven and on earth, and it's to him we must turn, and it's to him we must pray. And so Essentialist Press is sponsoring me to give 20 long lectures on prayer from the beginning. It begins in a week's time, 
half of them are already being given. It begins in a week's time. Their um, uh, website is open now. People can sign up for it now, and it is absolutely free, nothing. Because I wouldn't be prepared to make people pay for what is the most important thing in our lives. The only thing that can change is because we're to totally dependent on God, David. And now this is so, so, so very important. If I may make another plug, it is also my very latest book, The Primacy of Loving. In here, there's a whole history of prayer from the beginnings, a history of Christian spirituality. All that I'm saying to you now is said in here, but in far greater detail. And particularly, I go into detail when it comes to mystical prayer, because uh, priests and religious haven't even been beginning. They've hardly been going further than meditation. You know, if you were to trace the life uh, of a saint, for instance, meditation would be in the first five minutes, if we were to look at it on the hour clock. The rest would be in contemplation. Now, you know, as a Dominican, as well as I know, that St. Thomas made it quite clear when he said, you know, <laughs> That you, And he was not just talking about the Dominicans when he coined this famous phrase. He was talking about the Dominicans and the Franciscans and also the Austin Friars and the Carmelites, but it applies to the whole church. You can recite it with me, if you will, contemplata aliis tradere. Our calling is to contemplate and share the fruits of contemplation with others. This is the calling of all Christians. And this is why this prayer, that, that this course, therefore, in my book, will be going into mystical prayer. Why? Because if people start to take prayer seriously again, and it's going to begin with meditation, uh, pe whether people realize this or whether they don't not, do not, but meditation was actually something totally new, a new form of prayer at the beginning of the Catholic Church. On the first Pentecost day, it was unknown, except in the East, to Buddhists and so forth, for whom uh, it meant using mantras, exercises, um, forms of breathing and so forth, and also later to the Neoplatons. But meditation was totally new, why? Because it was discovered, of course, at the very, on the very first uh, Pentecost day itself, that those 3,000 people who were to be baptized, they never known Jesus Christ. They never met him. And so now, <laughs> with the reflections of Our Lady and the uh, apostles, they began to teach them that they a new form of prayer called meditation to come to know God's love as it was to be found firstly in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. It was a new aid to prayer. But then as it developed, of course, anybody who anybody who um, develops develops love wants to be close to the person they love. They not only want to be close to the person that they love, they want to enter into that person. They want to be one with that person. But of course, Jesus Christ had died. Yes, he had risen, but he was no longer on earth. 
And so gradually under the Holy Spirit and under the guidance of the apostles who were ahead of them, they were still beginners. Incidentally, let me just put in here, there was somebody there on that first Pentecost day who was not a beginner. And that was Our Lady. And she was immaculately conceived. And because she was immaculately conceived, she was instantly united with her beloved Christ, risen and glorified in prayer. That happened instantly. So contemplation for Mary happened instantly. And in Mary, everybody saw where they were going. In the apostles, because they weren't the finished article, only a short time ago, they've been grumbling and fighting about who's, you know, going to be top dog in the kingdom. Um, they're wanting to call, hold, uh, call down fire and brimstone upon those who disagreed with them. Even the best of them had been uh, betraying Christ three times. They were still beginners. They were on the way. And incidentally, notice me using the expression the way, because that was the name of Christians in early Christianity, because they were not just entering a sort of static ideology with new beliefs, they were on a journey into God through Jesus Christ our Lord, by first learning to come to know him through meditation, and then gradually, therefore, the Holy Spirit began to lead them on through meditation into contemplation, to come to know and experience Jesus Christ risen and glorified now as Mary was experiencing him. And for this to happen, it needed a purification. So please, viewers, you know, this John of the Cross might have written about all this a lot later, and his terminology may become the official terminology in the church. But from the very beginning, they had to be purified and refined and prepared to be united with their risen Lord. I've mentioned the apostles. Let me mention one other particular apostle. His name was St. Paul. Now, St. Paul was converted on his way to Damascus. But what happens when he is baptized? He immediately goes out into the desert for three years of solitary prayer. In his history of the uh, Catholic Church, Monsignor Philip Hughes said, but it went on from there. He needed a further purification. He talks about the novitiate of St. Paul for 10 years before he got up to speak. Now, this is something we could all learn from today. You know, I'm sometimes horrified that our converts poured into the Catholic Church. You know, and if they've got PhDs or MAs after their name, you know, they're given a handshake, the key to the door, and they start to hold forth. They take over editors of this newspaper, editors of that, and they, they, they become experts on the magisterium of the church. You know, I mean, I, you can't believe it. You know, when I was a young man in the 1950s, if you were a convert and you really did want to give your life to Christ, then you couldn't join a religious order for two or three years of preparation. And then there were six more years before you could get up in a pulpit or start preaching to others. So we've got to learn, therefore, we've got to go back to the desert. In the Old Testament, time and time again, when they strayed, what was the call? Back to the desert, 
because they believed that the people of God had been formed in the desert centuries before. It was always the call of the prophets back to the desert. That's where we've got to go now together, all of us. Go back to turn and open ourselves radically to the only one who can help us in this, our day of greatest travail. So, from the sense of the sacred, therefore, it's not just the sense of the sacred that's gone, it's the sense of sacredness of human beings. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit, made in the image and likeness of Christ. But the sense of the sacred is but the outward expression of our inner relationship with God in prayer. Take that away and everything falls away. We have taken that away. And I'm quoting uh, my sources and a very great source at that, Monsignor Ronald Knox. But it was not only Monsignor Ronald Knox who saw that period of the Counter-Reformation, that hundred years or more before quietism came as the peak, the highest point since the early church. It was Louis Bouillet. It was the great uh, spiritual writer or, or the spiritual historian, Poulain. It was Louis Cornier, the great expert of 17th century spirituality in Europe. And of course, Tanqueray, whose books no people no longer read anymore, his book on the spiritual life, a masterwork, but nobody is interested in the spiritual life now. No one's interested in prayer, contemplation. <laughs> the only contemplation they want to know is contemplation in action. When people go out into the so-called marketplace to be mystics, when they are empty, they don't even know what contemplation means. They've never experienced contemplation. They've never experienced the love of God through contemplation. They have never received the fruits of contemplation. The cardinal, the moral, the theological virtue, they haven't, you as a Dominican know what I'm talking about. You can't receive them this side of contemplation. You must first of all be purified to receive the fruits of contemplation. They are going out into the marketplace empty. And they've been doing this for decades upon decades. And you know what's happened, David, now. Everyone knows what's happened. They didn't convert the world. The world converted them. They now have not got the wisdom of God that comes through contemplation as its first fruit. They have now got the wisdom of the world. It is not the Catholic tradition that is going to change the world. It is going to be the wisdom of the want and woke world in which we live that they believe is going to change our tradition. So there we are, David. And this is why prayer is most important. And you know, this is not a plug. I'd make no money out of this at all. What I'm saying is, We've got to be united in prayer. And this series that I'm putting on, I've been told quite clearly, but I didn't need to be told.
It's not my ideas. You're not going to get some new, funny, new age guy. I'm going back. I've spent my life studying the early spirituality of the church. We're going to start there and we're going to come forward, bringing on board all that is genuine and authentic to help build a genuine prayer life, to keep us, the new remnant, together now because we are on the edge of absolute calamity without God. Prayer is only the word we use to describe how we radically open ourselves to him. So, David, one of the criticisms I hear today from some people who prefer the traditional Latin Mass is that the Norvis Oro, not, not that it was stripped of his Latin or his Gregorian chants, but that his prayers were shortened, that they don't sound as efficacious, not enough words. And I wonder, because of that shortening, has the prayers of the New Order rites, have they become too transactional? Have And because they become shortened, in, um, do people approach prayer in the Mass as if they would approach the marketplace, as you say in the world today, this transaction is, I'm going to do this and get this in, in exchange for it. So I want you to talk about that. And maybe is there a way that we can speak about prayer, uh, mystical prayer, um, being more contemplative and how that is opposed to prayer just as a mere transaction and perhaps how that's harmful to our pursuit of the sacred? Right, David. Well, first of all, I want to say what most of us know is that the Mass was, I don't say desacralized, but it was savagely edited by a cardinal who we now know as a Freemason, and that was Cardinal Bonini. Uh, anybody who's seen the Mass of Ages, for instance, will see literally line by line how this happened. They desacralized the mass or did their best to humanize it. Uh, that itself, you know, has, has had important connotations. But I also now want to go back to the beginning of the Vatican Council, because at the beginning of the Vatican Council, all the bishops who went and all the Pariti who joined them on the basis of my um, of, of my um, questionnaire and so on and so forth, all these people had not been brought up and trained in prayer of any sort, prayer beyond the beginning, hardly prayer beyond meditation, most certainly not contemplative prayer. And therefore, this had its effect on the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council. One major effect, because obviously I can't go through, you know, each of the 16 um, uh, um, doc documents. Yes, they produced a document on the liturgy, which is pretty good, actually, pretty good. Um, Joseph Jungmann had a say in it, so did Louis Bouillet, and they are good uh, liturgists. And you can see if you go back to Hippolytus in the early church and you, you, you compare them together, they're pretty close. They're pretty close. But the point I want to make about this, David, there was no 
constitution whatsoever about the spirituality and the prayer that makes the liturgy what it should be. Si cor non orat in vanum lingua laborat. At the very beginning of the council, a meeting took place in the Vatican. In that meeting, there was the Holy Father and a group, including Cardinal Bayer, and they all decided that they would say absolutely nothing about Our Lady's message from Fatima. Yes, they agreed it was Our Lady. Yes, they agreed it was true, but they defied her. It's almost as if they said, well, of course, she's in heaven, you know. <laughs> We're down on earth. We know how to do things better. What does she know? It was terrible. She was sent by God. She's the mother of God, sent by God to call us back to prayer and repentance to avoid what is happening in Rome at the mo moment. She foresaw it all quite clearly and in detail, but they didn't want anybody to know about it. They did not call upon the universal church to sackcloth and ashes, ashes and back to prayer. Nor did they even put a document in that Vatican Council, not one document dealing with prayer and spirituality, nothing whatsoever. So the, the liturgy, let me quote from Joseph Jungmann, the great Jesuit liturgist, <laughs> seems a contradiction in terms because the Jesuits are not known I mean, I had a very great friend of mine who was a Jesuit. His name was Kevin Donovan. He used to come to the center and talk on liturgy. <laughs> he said to me, if you ever want to really confuse a Jesuit, put him in charge of the Easter liturgy. <laughs> you know, so they're not noted. And yet here is Joseph Youngman. I mean, I've got his book here. I mean, you, you know that the, his, his book on the right of the Roman mass is the um classic but he said that the whole purpose of the mass is that our whole lives become the mass the place where we continually offer ourselves up through christ to the father that's the real interaction so the when we go to mass Incidentally, when Our Lady was speaking at Fatima, uh, rather interesting, this is, I find this fascinating because in all my study of the early Christian church and of its spirituality, I could sum it up for you, if you like, in four words. One would be repent, next would be prayer, the next would be sacrifice, and the next would be the Mass. Exactly what Our Lady told the young children at Fatima and authentic appearances since. It has always been the same thing. She sums up perfectly. You must repent, prayer, sacrifice, and the Mass. Take your sacrifices when you go to Mass and offer them up in, with, and through Christ to the Father. Then with what you received, you yourself are transformed. And the love that you receive within that love, within what the Greek fathers call the pleroma, are all the virtues, gifts, and fruits of the Holy Spirit. 
for you then to go out and put them into practice, yes, in the marketplace, if you like, but then you're not going into the marketplace empty. You're going full of the love of God and full of the fruits of the love of God, the virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And David, thank you so far for this wonderful catechesis and instruction on prayer being a first principle to recovering the sense of the sacred. Now, some of the students listening to this course may be wondering, um, maybe thinking the same thing, thank you. But next they may be saying, well, David, can you give us some, just some practical advice or some tips to move from meditation to contemplation? What would you say? What I would say is this that you must first of all begin now and go to the love of God directly, or rather indirectly. You must go to the love of God as it is found in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that means going to the scriptures, but not to study them to, to, to defend your thesis, you know, or, or, or your doctorate or whatever. Go to those parts of the scripture that focus in on Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. For instance, start reading slowly and prayerfully. St. John's Gospel, the discourse at the Last Supper. There you have the most profound mystical discourse that has ever taken place. Do you not know that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me, I am in you and you are in me. Make your home in me, I will make my home in you. Start your meditation there and then move on, move on to the love that that man showed when he was taken out to his death to be condemned and to be crucified. In the early days of the church, the neophytes who joined Christianity, they had already been taught to pray at nine o'clock in the morning, at midday and three in the afternoon, as was the Jewish custom that they brought over with them. They'd even brought the prayers, but those prayers were Christianized by adding in, with, and through Jesus Christ, but they said, at nine o'clock, you must now begin to meditate on the condemnation of Christ, his death at 12, uh, 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 his crucifixion at 12, and his death at three o'clock. So go, I would say, in the first instance, pray over slowly, pour over those sacred texts, ruminate on them, as St. Augustine would say, make them part of you, and then see what they did to that man, that man, most adorable, lovable man who ever existed on the face of this earth. Go and see what they did for him and what he accepted, and he could have stopped it at any single moment, 10,000 legions of angels if I want. He could have stopped it at any moment to express the height, the depth, and the length of his love that surpasses the understanding. Move on there, and yes, you will be moved gradually more and more, not just your mind, but your emotions, your heart, your feelings. That's all you need to do 
Why? Because at that point, the Holy Spirit, when you've demonstrated for long enough that you are there seriously wanting to love God as he was, perfectly personified in Jesus Christ, it is then that the Holy Spirit takes over. Remember, contemplation is the pure gift of God. And that gift is given when the Holy Spirit will one day, and we're talking about many months, a year perhaps, of daily trying to pray in this way, you will suddenly find yourself led into the mystic way by the Holy Spirit, where you are now going to be purified in order to be united with the risen and glorified person of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's his work then, it's actually he's there throughout it, the Holy Spirit. He will guide, but that's begin there with that sort of meditation. And whenever you can, daily if possible, and move forward and onwards, the Holy Spirit will take over. Perhaps the larger part of the book that I showed you earlier on, because I know that from now on people are going to turn to prayer. You know, David, I often laugh and, laugh and say to people, I have spent certainly the last 20 years answering a question that nobody has been asking. Nobody's been saying, teach us to pray. How do we pray? How do we meditate? How do we pray when we're led on into contemplation? Nobody's been asking, but I have been answering that question in my books because I know the time will come. David, the time has come. The Holy Spirit will lead and guide us. Begin coming to know the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord and the Holy Spirit will do the rest gradually. Follow the course on prayer and I will, in that course, I will suggest readings and meditations and do the best to keep us all together. We must stop this endless carping between each other, endless grumbling and grousing. The easiest thing in the world is to grumble and grounds, and there's too much of it in the church at the moment. We must, you know, I, I have a picture in my mind that St. Jerome paints for us of the great uh, evangelist St. John at the end of his life before he died. They carried him from one Eucharistic community to another. And St. Jerome said, all he said was, Brethren, brethren, love one another. Perhaps that's a good place to end. David Torkington, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on how contemplative prayer leads us to the sacred. Thank you. Thank you, David. Glad at last we have met. Not for the last time, I hope. <laughs>